This is the History of Finland podcast. Join us on a new bi-weekly podcast where we dive headlong to the stormy history of Finland, cracked between the big powers of Sweden and Russia, and their claims over the peninsula. Mixed with stories from my own life related to the themes of each episode, you'll also discover what happened along the way. Things like what Napoleon had to do with Finnish independence, and what he thought about it all. Welcome along. Well, that is a very good friend of the podcast, Mr. Matti Yokimo, with his History of Finland podcast. I strongly recommend it. What a fantastic voice he's got, an amazing tone and a great accent. And I hope you give it a try. It's really worth a try. The History of Finland podcast. This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 26, The Early Roman Republic. in the previous episode, the Roman Kingdom changed into the Roman Republic due to the fact that the Romans wanted to get rid of their despotic king, Tarquin the Proud. Some Romans actually wanted to remain a kingdom, even wishing for Tarquin the Proud to be reinstated. But the opposing sentiment far outweighed this, and this was due to the fact that Tarquin the Proud had been a heartless ruler, executing many senators who supported Tarquin's opponents. Due to Tarquin's extreme behaviour, the Romans had generally decided that they didn't need a ruling monarch and that they could seek a more democratic style of governance by electing consuls to oversee the fortunes of the Roman city-state. A citizens' assembly would instate two consuls. These consuls would be able to keep an eye on each other to prevent another despotic ruler of Rome. The first consuls are two men of whom we mentioned in the previous episode called Collatinus and Brutus and they were a vital part of the story of the downfall of the Roman monarchy. By backdating we have determined that this transition happened in around the year 509 BCE. In each subsequent year, new consuls were elected by the Roman Assembly of Citizens. So this is really not that much different from the city of Athens. Despite the promotion of freedom in the Roman Republic, the loyalty and devotion that many gave to the Republic almost made those most loyal to Rome religiously tied to it. Top public figures who were members of a Roman senate were expected to live innocent lives as a means of dedication of themselves to the Republic. Everything was designed to remove 
egotism from the rule of the city-state. If the rulers of the city-state wanted their citizens to live a humble life dedicated to the Republic, then the senators would need to set the example. Citizens and Slaves The structure of the Roman Republic was very Greek indeed. The removal of the monarchy was similar to the removal of the tyrant rulers in favour of an assembly-led group of periodically elected archons. The structuring of the population had similarities too. The free men of the city-state were the citizens of Rome and they would have the ability to vote for who should be the periodically elected consuls. The citizens would be distinguished from the slave class who would not have any voting rights. The citizens would be known as the plebeians unless they were the wealthy landowners in which case they would be known as the patricians. Senators would be members of the patrician class and so there was still an attempt to keep the ruling class somewhat elite which resembles the Athenian aristocracy trying to preserve their control. Despite not being slaves, the plebeians, or the plebs as they were more colloquially known, were still made to feel as an inferior class and this would actually create tension within the Roman city-state. The plebs of Rome did not appreciate being actively classed as common citizens or labelled as commoners. The name of common people maybe should not have necessarily turned out to have been condescending. The plebs would have made valuable contributions to the Roman city-state and they would have realised this too. Therefore, the fact that the patricians were somewhat attempting to manipulate Rome to preserve their own power at the expense of the plebs showed that the egotism removed alongside the Roman kingdom was still there. The common people were unlikely to willingly cooperate with the patricians and this would cause an issue with manning the Roman army and organising the agricultural industry of the city-state. This led to an ongoing political struggle within the Roman Republic called the Conflict of the Orders and it would underpin life in the Roman Republic for at least the first 200 years of the Republic's existence. Despite being full citizens, the plebs felt that they were unfairly represented and by the year 494 BCE they had set up official assemblies of their own to represent their grievances. The problems that the plebs could cause to the patricians was considerable. A deliberate attempt to sabotage agricultural production or a refusal to march into battle could cause incredible problems for the Romans if the protests of the plebs were ignored. The Twelve Tables so although the overthrow of the monarchy at the end of the 6th century BCE should have been a glorious revolution of Rome, its progress stuttered initially 
thanks to the cumbersome establishment of the city-state going forward. The Servian constitution was something that we mentioned in the last episode as a modernisation of Roman politics during the kingdom years. However, the reforms would need to be fluid to reflect the fluidly changing politics of Rome. And we saw the same thing happen in Athens when the draconian laws created in the 7th century BCE had to be reviewed and revised by Solon during the 6th century BCE. This is widely viewed upon as Athens successfully moving towards a more democratic society and the Romans were aware of Athens prospering despite the complexities of its society. So they sent what is referred to as an embassy, which is a delegation of experts, to Athens in order to study the Athenian legislation, with Athens under the strong leadership of Pericles. On their return, they would work on a style of law code that could hopefully fix the class struggles within Rome and allow all classes to feel like they were being treated fairly. This has come down to us as something called the Law of the Twelve Tables. Not much in the way of original evidence of this law code has survived, so we have relied a lot on the historical reporting of Livy, the historian from the earliest years of the Roman Empire, some 450 years later. Many modern historians would consider Livy's work to be a deliberate glorification of Roman history designed to give Rome a strong legacy that everybody could identify with and be proud of. And after all, why wouldn't he? It wasn't long after the initial publications of the Twelve Tables that patricians and plebeians were permitted to intermarry. But still the plebeians were very much made to feel like second class citizens and the danger of the patricians not reforming the Roman Republic quick enough would be that the plebeians would secede from the Roman Republic altogether and build their own city-state in the same way that Romulus was reported to have done when he created Rome itself. It is interesting to contemplate what the actual problem was in Rome. The kingdom was abolished, but there was still an elite group of aristocratic families. And despite the Roman desire to reform into something more democratic, it was actually money that was the new king. And the wealthiest plebeian landowners were now able to marry into patrician families and subsequently become senators. So there was still a common class of people, but the aristocracy was actually just turning from a group of families into the wealthiest people of Rome. The plebs may have had more individual opportunity, but those poorest citizens of Rome remained poor. The Battle of the Allia As we discovered during our ancient Greek series, the Celts of the lands of Central Europe had become quite organised and active in the second half of the first millennium BCE. 
Towards the end of the 4th century BCE, the Celts had migrated eastwards from the lands of modern Austria and Hungary into the lands of northern Serbia and Bulgaria before invading Macedonian and Thracian lands to the south. Before they migrated eastwards, they were occupying the lands to the north of the Etruscans and they would attempt to migrate southwards at the beginning of the 4th century BCE. Before the Celts came, the Romans were actually enjoying some military success in their locality. The Roman consuls, who were very much patricians, nominated a dictator whose role would be a military leader and responsible for the defence of the city. One of the more famous Roman dictators was a man called Marcus Furius Camillus, commonly called Camillus. Camillus would eventually be the Roman dictator on no less than five occasions. On the first of those five occasions, he would lead the Roman army to a great victory. Rome was still a small city-state, so to describe the victory as great would only be in the context of Rome's contemporary status. Their victory would be against another city just a few miles up the Tiber River called Vei. As a victory, it would be an example of the earliest signs of Rome attempting to expand its influence and is therefore interesting just for that fact alone. However, it was retrospectively written about by later Roman scribes with a legendary slant comparable to the Trojan War which will always continue to make us feel slightly nervous about the veracity of the Roman history that we are describing. The particular Celts who were migrating eastwards across central Europe and then southwards into the Italian and Balkan peninsulas are collectively called the Gauls. And we have mentioned them before as the founders of the land of Galatia in Anatolia. We don't really have any record of the Gallic impact on the Etruscans. We have to assume that they were an unwelcome threat to the cities of the Etruscans. However, the Gauls would actually reach Rome itself in 390 BCE. The Roman army would travel northwards to meet the Gallic tribes just outside the city itself and a conflict would take place called the Battle of the Allia. As per usual, accounts of the battle differ, quite possibly dependent on how unfortunate or brave the writer wanted the Romans to appear. The Roman army was defeated on the battlefield, and all accounts seem to suggest that the Romans were in some disarray and very disorganised. This may have been because the primary Roman army was otherwise occupied on other campaigns. It could have been that the plebs, who were contributing manpower to the army, were feeling a little bit anarchic. Either way, the Gauls advanced on the city of Rome, and according to Livy's account, they slaughtered people and burned down buildings. 
The Romans took back control of their city, possibly with the aid of surrounding cities allowing their inhabitants to have the rights of citizens of Rome. This points me towards this whole episode not being a full-on invasion of Rome, but rather just a sponsored raid. Certain Etruscans would have not liked the Romans, especially if they were trying to impress themselves on their neighbouring cities. There is no lasting legacy of a Gallic attempt to colonise the Italian peninsula and no real record of a major conflict between the Gauls and the Etruscans or a major loss of Etruscan territory to the Gauls. The only thing we have is a contentious account of the Gauls besieging the Etruscan city of Colusium. It seems much more likely that Gallic mercenaries were sponsored by disgruntled Etruscans, looking to weaken the Romans so that their local threat to neighbouring cities could be curbed. The Gauls are known to have operated as mercenaries in other instances, so this seems to be a likely fit. Accounts exist that claim that the dictator Camillus was reinstated and heroically rescued Rome by winning the city back in battle, although there are many who question this event. Now it might be prudent to refer back to the plebeian plight again as these events were during the thick of the conflict of the orders. If the Battle of the Allia took place 10 miles north of Rome, then it is highly likely, due to the distance from the city, that any arable land would have been owned by plebeians, and so therefore the land of the plebeians was generally at higher risk than land owned by the patricians. If something unfortunate were to happen to the land of a plebeian and he had to borrow money from a patrician that he couldn't pay back, then that plebeian could be lawfully enslaved by his creditor. So there was still a definite struggle and the Roman Republic had to continue to respect this. We have to remember that the Roman Republic was a small city-state and that crop failures and famines were actually quite common in these early years, so the loyalty of the plebs was essential. In 367 BCE, plebeians were actually able to become consuls for the first time. 25 years later, a further law was passed stating that one of the two consuls had to be a plebeian. So as the decades rolled by, the plebs were beginning to get more of their share of equality. Roman Expansion With Etruscan power growing, the Romans absolutely needed the loyalty of its citizens and could also ill afford to sit and wait for fortune to smile upon them. Rome had to actively look to expand its area of influence in order to have the resource to be able to compete with its neighbours. There is no doubt in my mind that the entire events of the first half of this episode may not have made the final cut in the History of the World podcast had Rome not gone on to be the famous significant imperial entity 
that we all know. So how did Rome turn from a local city-state into a feared imperial force? We have mentioned the Latins previously. The Latins were occupying lands to the south of Rome and although they had some differences, many Latins actually became integrated into Roman society. However, in the aftermath of the Gallic sacking of Rome, the relationship between the Romans and their Latin neighbours became a lot more frosty. To Rome's east was a society known as the Samnites, who also came into conflict with the Romans. So the Romans were surrounded by potential threats. The Roman acquisition of the city of Capua might help us to tap into something that the Romans were doing that was working for them in terms of the expansion of their territory. Capua turned to Rome for support in defending their town against the Samnites of central Italy. Capua itself would have had influence over the surrounding lands of Campania. So when the Romans agreed to intervene on the side of the Campanians, it was a bit of a rescue mission as Campania was being overrun by the Samnites. So when the Romans pushed the Samnites out of Campania, the Campanians may have seen the Romans as their liberators and with the promise of Roman citizenship, they may have been very willing to have surrendered themselves to become a part of the Roman Republic. The lands of the Latins were referred to as Latium and their relationship with the Romans caused division between the Latins themselves with some of the cities of Latium wishing to keep close ties with the Romans and others not so much. This resulted in a breakdown of the Latin League a league which Rome had become the dominant member, but those Latins who wanted to stay loyal to Rome were allowed a good amount of the legal rights of a full citizen of Rome. So we could see as the 4th century BCE progressed that the neighbours of Rome were actually attracted to being annexed by the Romans in certain circumstances. Roman successes in the Samnite and Latin Wars of the 340s and 330s BCE resulted in the Romans having control over a significant amount of coastal territory along the western side of the Italian peninsula. Tension between the Samnites and the Romans escalated again in the 320s and perhaps surprisingly when considering the ascendancy of the Romans the Samnites scored victories over the Romans, which led to Rome being forced into a peace treaty. We see some evidence of a uniqueness of battle tactics after the five-year treaty expired and conflict resumed. Rather than adopt the Greek hoplite phalanx style of battle that was often favoured by highly organised infantry units at this time, the Romans employed a checkerboard formation where squares of the units lined up offset and separated by voids between the units. 
The advantage that this held is that an entire army unit would be able to maintain a formation even when negotiating undulating terrain, which is commonplace on the Italian peninsula. The Romans would also continually look to establish new colonies and station army units in them with the sole purpose of making moves back against the Samnites who had caused them so many headaches towards the end of the 4th century BCE. Rome would be building a formidable force to counter-attack the Samnites and they would also be working hard to create a sustainable infrastructure to be able to maximise the influence on the Roman economy of these new colonies by building road networks. Not only would the Romans now be in a strong position to challenge the Samnites, but they would also be able to challenge the Etruscans and the Umbrians to their north. So this set of conflicts which led to the conclusion of what is called the Second Samnite War had put Rome into a position stronger than ever. By 306 BCE, the Romans had managed to take an area of land that reached across to the east coast of the Italian peninsula and southwards along that east coast too. Rome was now a significant entity and they had done this by chipping away at its neighbours, supporting cities in local conflicts and then inviting them to be directly involved in Roman politics. So over the course of the 4th century BCE, Rome had gone from being a city-state to an imperial movement. Despite all of the political reforms of the Roman Republic during the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, things were never completely stable. As we discovered, the plebeians were always kept beneath the aristocratic patricians and treated as lower-class citizens of Rome. However, due to the fact that the vast number of citizens were plebeians, whenever the plebeians were frustrated, they could easily cause huge disruption to the Republic itself. By the end of the 4th century BCE, we know that one of the two consuls of Rome was required to be a plebeian. This was also the case for the censors of Rome, who were responsible for the registration and rights of Roman citizens. Once again, Rome had two censors, and one of them had to be a pleb. The Roman censors gave us modern English words such as censorship, which relates to what the public are allowed to see, as the Roman censors had a good deal of control over citizens' rights. Another important political faction of Rome was its priesthood, as the religious offices of Rome were integrated into the secular system. Such was the importance of religion within the secular establishment that now it was deemed that half the priests should be plebeians. Despite all of these reforms, the plebeian citizens were still the ones feeling the strain of living alongside patricians. So, for example, if Rome was successful in acquiring more land from a neighbouring city-state, it would be the wealthy patricians who would get the first spoils of war, while the plebeians were left with the less fruitful remainder. 
This seemed unjust because it was most likely the plebeians who were contributing the bulk part of the army's manpower, likely causing difficulties on physically managing their land if they were landowners. And this may have caused them financial problems, causing them to fall into debt with a wealthy patrician, and if they could not pull themselves out of debt, then they could end up condemned to slavery. So much for contributing towards Roman society and its success. In 287 BCE, the plebeians decided that the Roman Republic had still not done enough to give them equal rights. And they seceded, as they had done on a number of occasions previously, this time to the Aventine Hill. So the patricians and the politicians had to react if they were to protect the Republic. There would be no Republic without the plebeians. But the plebeians also wanted a solution as opposed to a secession. Therefore it was decided that the plebeians would be allowed to integrate into the Roman nobility. And this blurred the lines between patricians and plebeians enough that plebeians would believe that they had more opportunity to ascend to superior ranks within the Republic. So now, if you were born a citizen of Rome, regardless of your status at birth, you could still attain a noble status. This was enough to ensure that the conflict of the orders was over and that the Roman Republic became a lot stronger. Pyrrhus of Epirus Now, if you're getting a sense of déjà vu at this point, it is probably because we are continuously bumping into King Pyrrhus of Epirus during this podcast. This character was an Epirate king from the land of Epirus on the Balkan Peninsula, and his main legacy to history was that he crossed the Ionian Sea in the 3rd century BCE, made war against the Carthaginians in Sicily, and then against the Romans on the Italian peninsula, scoring some famous victories, but ultimately achieving no lasting result due to the fact that in scoring victory, he lost too much to be able to capitalise and ended up going back across the Ionian Sea, leaving the Romans and the Carthaginians to focus on each other. Something we'll pick up on next week. We first spoke of King Pyrrhus from the perspective of the Carthaginians in our episode about Punic culture back in episode 9 of volume 2. We also spoke of him again but this time from the Greek cultural perspective in episode 17 of this volume. Now we need to talk about him from the Roman perspective. By the year 280 BCE, the Romans had influence over a band of land across the width of the peninsula from Rome in the west to the Adriatic Sea in the east, and they certainly now had to be the most powerful entity of the Italian peninsula. However, the Etruscans were still dominant in the north of the peninsula, and the south was dominated by Greek 
colonies who are now operating as societies of their own since their founding Greek societies had undergone major political upheavals following the events of the Macedonian conquest of the 4th century BCE amongst other things. Sicily was being competed for by the Carthaginians in the west of the island and the Syracusans in the east and the Romans had a very good diplomatic understanding with the Carthaginians at the time. The Carthaginians were also enjoying a very prosperous phase in their own history. Pyrrhus crossed the Ionian Sea and landed at Tarentum in the south of the Italian peninsula. Tarentum was originally a Spartan colony established in the 8th century BCE and they were able to maintain a political relationship with the Spartans throughout the centuries following. Tarentum had watched nervously as the Romans increased their influence in the middle of the peninsula, especially at the expense of the Samnites, who were a highly respected buffer between Rome and the south. Some of the Greek colonies of the south were now approaching the Romans, possibly in a similar way to how the Campanians had done in the previous century. Tarentum was the most powerful of the colonies of Magna Graecia, and Tarentum was not happy that the Romans were becoming involved in the affairs of Magna Graecia. Rome continued its involvement in the affairs of Magna Graecia, and when the Roman navy entered the Gulf of Taranto, the Tarentines attacked them, leading to a declaration of war. And this is when Pyrrhus was invited to Tarentum. The Epirates would clash with the Romans at the Battle of Heraclea, and they would defeat the Romans. However, the loss of men in the Epirate army was too high for Pyrrhus to be able to capitalise on, and although the Romans had to retreat, the Epirates would have to rebuild too. Pyrrhus would embark on a campaign of gathering resources, while the Romans would prepare to meet the Epirates again. And this would happen the following year, when the two parties clashed again at the Battle of Asculum. The Epirates would be victorious again, but once again the battle was extremely expensive to both sides. The Romans would once again return to Rome to rebuild, while Pyrrhus turned his attention to doing battle against the Carthaginians in Sicily. Pyrrhus believed that by defeating Carthage, he could capitalise on the resources of the Carthaginian Empire. The Romans were in their homeland, so they were able to pull on the resources of their societies to replenish their forces. Pyrrhus would need to be inventive as his resource pool was somewhat limited and he would require assistance from other Hellenistic societies and nations to provide and transport more resources to the Italian peninsula. Pyrrhus was quite successful in Sicily but he was unable to finish off the Carthaginians due to the fact that the native Sicilians were rising up against him and the Romans were ready to come back to the south again. 
the Epirates would meet the Romans in battle again in 275 BCE and this time it was the Battle of Beneventum. Just as it was at Heraclea and Asculum, Beneventum was a fierce contest in which both parties suffered many losses and it is not clear whether either side truly could claim victory. But we do know that Pyrrhus suffered enough losses to have to effectively give up on his campaign. Pyrrhus would return to Epirus having achieved no gain in the last five years. The Carthaginians re-established themselves in Sicily and the Romans capitalised on the entire situation. The Romans had befriended enough of the societies of Magna Graecia to be able to gain a foothold in the south. And when Pyrrhus of Epirus died on campaign in the Peloponnese, the city of Tarentum knew that the game was up. They had no option but to surrender to the Romans or face complete destruction. With the Etruscans subdued in the north of the peninsula and all of Magna Graecia now subjugated in the south, the Romans were now in control of the Italian peninsula and were now recognised by the known world as an international power. Next time, we're going to look at how tensions rose between the two great powers of the Western Mediterranean, the Romans and the Carthaginians, and how this escalated into the Punic Wars. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We can really see things now starting to develop and uh, we're really going to be talking about some great episodes in Roman history. So next week we're going to be looking at the Punic Wars and everything that comes with those fantastic um, confrontations between the Romans and the Carthaginians. Fascinating stuff and I can't wait to get into it. Now then, of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, you want to support the podcast, then you can do so by going to our Patreon page. Now, to access that page, you just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. There's a link that appears on every page just at the top on the menu bar. It says Patreon and you can go there and you can donate as little as one dollar per month. And the one thing I do differently to most other Patreon accounts is I allow you to get the benefits by accumulating a donation tier over time. So if you want to reap the reward of the $10 tier, then I will allow you to achieve that over 10 months. So you can donate $1 a month of 10 months and get the $10 tier reward. Ain't that good? When you do sign up and become a patron of the History of the World podcast, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has 
Adam Hosier, who became a member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati this week. Thank you, Adam, and welcome. Okay, let's dive into some reviews now. So we've got uh, one from Canada, um, from NML4330, who's uh, who's given us five stars, but interesting and entertaining. I enjoy the podcast. I'm now in the time of Alexander. Worth the time to listen. I only wish there was less European content. I wonder what was happening in Asia and Africa during the time of Alexander. Well, great, um, great comment there. A very, very good comment. I think it is uh, important to understand um, that the History of the World podcast will explore those areas of the world. Um, reality is, I don't know a great deal about what was going on at this time in, in Africa. There's not really a lot of written evidence of what was going on. Um, we really find that there's a lot of um, European um, stuff being covered at the moment because the Europeans wrote about a lot of the stuff that was going on so like for example the greeks and the and the romans were writing a lot of stuff so um when we look back at history especially this period we find that the greeks and the romans were always inevitably going to take up a huge chunk of time during this podcast series and uh, i think 2020 was always going to be the year of the greeks and the romans uh, but don't worry, we we will cover other cultures and certainly we'll be looking at the developments of China and India um, in some degree of depth. And also this will be the period of the Huns. We see the Huns migrating westwards. And then uh, in volume four, we're going to be really going into some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of depth as to some of the... More, some of the places that we haven't really discussed in, in too much detail, particularly Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, sort of Vietnam and, and that area. Um, and then also Africa as well will feature in, in the medieval volume, volume four, um, and particularly Mali, Benin, Zimbabwe um, are all um, featured places really I think that we can expect to speak more of in volume four so these areas of the world won't ultimately be neglected but certainly um, we should follow the Roman story from start to finish I think for comprehension so so that's the plan for the rest of the year um, another review we have from JRN nickname um, from the United States of America has put history of the amazing world outstanding i have learned so much chris's delivery is pure ear candy each episode is a story of course but also the collection of episodes is another story unto itself each topic is respectfully treated and chris conveys an infectious enthusiasm always i do hope that young people have the opportunity to enjoy these accounts they would be so richly rewarded you know, it's good, I think, that fans of history understand that there is a deep uh, underlying message that can be taken from learning about our history. So 
Uh, it's a, it's very encouraging to see that, and I, I do think young people should be introduced to history. And and sometimes I don't always think it's taught in a fun manner. It's sort of textbook, droney, um, and you know I think it needs. I think it is exciting history, and we need to make it exciting and uh, interesting to learn about, especially for young people. I think it's quite enriching to the soul and to the uh, to the mind to learn about history. Well, thank you to everyone who reviews the podcast and uh, rating and reviewing the podcast is incredibly important, I think, to maximising exposure. And uh, incredible uh, thanks to those patrons who contribute towards the podcast. It's a voluntary thing. And uh, but you really do help, and um, you know, hopefully, you know, it keeps me ambitious. It'd be great if this podcast could develop into something of a, a library that is difficult to find elsewhere. And um, if so, you know, hopefully, uh, your donations will help me to uh, enhance the work and make it um, something of some value in the future. Anyway, that's it for another week. Next week. Very important week, the Punic Wars. Very important episode in history. So something to look forward to. Until then, we'll speak to you in seven days. Don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.